you have your Bibles, join me in turning to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, we'll consider together this morning verses 11 through 15. Revelation 20, 11 through 15. You might be relieved to know most of the difficult to interpret passages in Revelation are now behind us. As we look toward landing our series in the book of Revelation, things from this point forward are fairly straightforward. They are encouraging and insightful, but straightforward. We are told here of a final judgment in the passage that we'll consider this morning. We are given the promise of a new Jerusalem, a new heaven, and a new earth in the chapters that follow. Given the guarantee of a free drink for the thirsty soul from the fountain of the water of life that flows freely in the new city we're set to inhabit by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is certainty about these closing chapters, these closing sections to the book of Revelation that I want to press upon a little bit in the time that we have together. Here, there is no conjecture. There is no mistaking what John is indicating in these passages. These are truths we must absolutely reckon with. We talked on our last Sunday in the book of Revelation about the millennium of all things, an, an issue about which there can be a great deal of disagreement. We might acknowledge millennial debates as somewhat negotiable, not of first importance, but not of no importance, as we said a couple of weeks back. The truths about which John speaks in the verses we're going to cover this morning are non-negotiable, non-debatable truths. All of mankind, every man and woman and boy and child is barreling toward a moment in human history wherein every soul will stand before the judgment bar of God and face a judgment on the basis of Christ's righteousness and his righteousness alone. The passage itself is an invitation that we consider where we stand, our standing on that great day. There's a measure of urgency about our hearing and wrestling with the truths of these passages, noting that today, not tomorrow or someday in the distant future, but today is the day of salvation. Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 11. If you found your way there, join me in standing as we read together the word of God. Revelation 20 and verse 11, the Bible says, Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. Also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. Books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. And the sea gave up its dead, and death and Hades gave up their dead, and all were judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Most regard this section of Revelation as sort of this tragic moment wherein judgment comes over this mass of humanity. There is an element of tragedy about the reality that there are many who perish without a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But the tone of our passage is not itself tragic. 
In fact, there is a certain optimism about these verses. Often, philosophically, the challenge to the gospel in the Western world is the existence of evil. And the question is framed, if God is good and he is all-powerful, how then do you account for the presence of evil or unrighteousness in the world? Well, the Bible never engages in philosophical conjecture. Rather than entertaining such a thing, God simply moves to eradicate the presence of evil and unrighteousness in the world. That's where the optimism enters in in chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. What we have in the remaining chapters of Revelation is the restoration of garden bliss. What began in the Garden of Eden was corrupted by the presence of sin in Adam. Now at the second coming of Jesus, what had been corrupted is being sanctified, recreated in redemption by the presence of a holy, holy, holy Jesus. Evil, unrighteousness, sin, and death are being eradicated at the judgment seat of Jesus, even as the fullness of salvation is granted those whose names are found written in the Lamb's book of life. All of mankind is barreling toward this moment in human history when all of the dead will stand before the judgment of Jesus. But for those who are found in the book, the book of life, there lies beyond this moment the hope of life eternal, absent, void of any sin, any sickness, any suffering whatsoever in the direct physical presence of the one who bled and died in our place. Most conversation about the gospel in the Western world, most conversation about Christianity more broadly in the Western world is, is really about function. When I hear people talking about religious stuff, I hear them talking about functionality. In other words, we have a somewhat utilitarian view of religion. In other words, the goodness of a religion is either affirmed or denied on the basis of how it works for us. You hear things said in the public square about someone's faith, and it may differ from the speaker, and they might say of that person, but that works for them. Just this week, I was listening to a Hollywood celebrity being interviewed about spirituality in, in his life, and he referenced the interviewer who was a Christian and said, that, that works for you. And then he begins to describe what he practices in his own life, meditation and solitude. Now, I don't have any doubts that meditation and solitude could be beneficial for a person, even for a lost person. Sometimes the best thing in the world I get to do over the course of the week is get away from people. That can be a very healthy thing to do. But we're not evaluating a religion or religious practice on the basis of its usefulness. It must be evaluated on the basis of its truthfulness. And what I want to say to you this morning is that it doesn't matter how you feel about certain things. How beneficial or unbeneficial you may regard certain elements of the Christian faith to be. You must reckon with the truth of this passage, which is again, that all of mankind is barreling toward this moment of judgment at the end of things as we know them. It will not matter in the courtroom of God what you feel or what you think about a given issue. That is irrelevant. 
The two most irrelevant words in all theological conversation is, I think, or as it's been replaced, I feel. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what you feel. It doesn't matter what is beneficial in a given moment. What matters is what is true or perhaps even what is false. This becomes the standard for us by which we evaluate the goodness, the the acceptability of the message of the gospel. Do not think I'm going to come to Jesus because this will work for me. That, That is not the place Jesus intends to have in your life. Jesus does not work for you, by the way. And I would add, there will be circumstances under which following after the message of the gospel, answering the demands of the gospel on your life will prove to not be beneficial for you. Think of how we talk about something as basic as forgiveness. What do we say? Even in Christian conversation, oh, you, you need to forgive for yourself. Being unforgiving, being bitter is like taking poison with the expectation that that's going to kill the person you're angry with. That is an entirely utilitarian view of forgiveness. The reality is we should forgive because Jesus said it was morally right that we would forgive. We have received grace and forgiveness from Jesus, a testament to the rightness of forgiveness. And on that basis, and that basis alone, we should extend grace and forgiveness to those who may offend us. There may be circumstances under which forgiving someone's transgression against you does not serve your benefit. But the circumstances surrounding the call to forgiveness do not dictate for us the truthfulness of Jesus' call in our life, the appropriateness of forgiveness in any given situation, given the model that Jesus has established for us. Now, I'm not saying to you this morning that the Christian faith does not produce certain benefits in our life. I am where I am as a husband, as a father, as an individual, because of the practice and implementation of certain Christian principles. There's a concept within social studies called redemption and lift. Ordinarily, when a person comes to faith in Jesus, things within their life just seem to improve miraculously. It comes from nowhere, and sociologists are confounded at how this works its way out. Well, it's the implementation of certain Christian practices and principles. I'm working on a series of sermons to come sometime later in the summer from the book of Proverbs, which is entirely practical. And it just calls upon us to live a certain lifestyle, to practice certain principles. comes with a guarantee, in fact, that in principle, these things will work for you more often than they work against you. But the truth of the gospel, listen, the truth of the gospel, it's not about how it functions in your life. I'm able to get by. I'm coping because of the presence of the gospel in my life. That is not the nature of the gospel at all. When you come to passages like this that speak so insistently on the reality of our barreling toward that moment, you must reckon with what is true and what is false, not what works for you. Because the only thing that will work for you on the day of judgment is to find your place of shelter behind the shed blood of Jesus that covers all our sins. In fact, we might say that what we're discussing this morning is what will work for you on the last day. Not just every day, but on the last day. When your thoughts and your feelings subside under the absolute sovereignty and omniscience of Jesus, what will work for you on that great day? Verse 11. 
John says, I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence. And no place was found for them. The idea here is of Jesus on the throne of judgment. If we're looking at the structure, the organization of the book of Revelation as a unit, what is stated here in Revelation 20, 11 through 15 stands in contrast to what was described in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. In Revelation 4, God is on the throne of heaven, and he is worshipped. The angelic host sing of him, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. It's the revelation iteration of Isaiah 6 where those fiery angels fly back and forth and they sing the praise of the God seated on the throne in the year that King Uzziah died. Later in the chapter, the question looms, who is worthy to take and to open the scroll, the scroll of judgment that the God on the throne holds in his right hand? John even goes as far as saying, I wept because no one in heaven was found to be worthy to take and to open the scroll. That is until one is pictured in Revelation chapter 5 as a lamb slaughtered, standing between the 24 elders and the throne of God who was deemed worthy to take and to open the scroll. And the angelic chorus saying, he is worthy. He alone is worthy. The picture is of Jesus having been crucified, having died as our substitute on the cross, having been buried and raised from the dead, ascending to take his position at the right hand of God and being acclaimed as worthy to take and open the scroll of heaven. Now it's Jesus, not the Father, but Jesus on the throne of judgment. Jesus exercises his sovereign authority in the judgment of the world on the last day. A few times along the way, I've, I've pointed this out, but I think it's worth stating again. If, if you only had the first 65 books of the Bible, you would know pretty much everything you need to know about the gospel, about the nature and character of Jesus, about the Trinity, about the second coming of Jesus and what the future holds for us. This is spelled out elsewhere in the Bible. In other words, if you didn't have revelation, you would have the basic facts of the gospel in the first 65 books of the Bible. What we have in the book of Revelation is the appropriation of the promises of the gospel in a context where people are being persecuted and even killed for their faith in Jesus. Revelation, in other words, takes the message of the gospel and applies it to hurting, suffering hearts. It applies the gospel in such a way as to give hope to those who might otherwise be hopeless. What's being described in the verses we've read this morning is not new information. It is not new insight for us to say that Jesus is the judge of all the earth. Even immediately after the resurrection of Jesus, how did he instruct his disciples? The 11 gathered to Jesus in Galilee and many others with them. And Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples and teach them my commandments and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and know that I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Among the first things Jesus says to the church upon his resurrection is that all authority has been given unto me. 
Paul describes it in Philippians chapter 2 as though Jesus has been in his humiliation exalted by God. In his humiliation, he has received exaltation from the Father. The name which is above every name has been assigned to Christ and to Christ alone. So that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess both in heaven and on earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is judge. Jesus is the judge of all the earth. This impacts our lives practically in a couple of ways. One, the fact that Jesus and Jesus alone is the judge of all the earth might create in us some charity when it comes to making judgment on those around us. If Jesus alone can judge, you may regard yourself as less deep in the ditch than your neighbor, but you are no less in the ditch when it comes to the standard of Jesus, perfect in his righteousness. Yeah, it used to be in my day, I'm feeling especially old today. I have a senior graduating today. I feel like an old man in a lot of ways. My hair's falling out. I have a kid graduating. I'm just getting old. It's kind of a miserable thing to experience. And uh, it was in my day, back in the Stone Age of the 90s, it was kind of a thing to say. There were even songs that carried the lyrics, only God can judge me. Well, one, I'm not sure that means what you think it means if you're boasting in the reality that only God can judge you. An all-seeing, all-knowing, fiercely righteous God in heaven not only can judge me, but he will judge me. And that demands of me that the situation of my sin be rectified before it is forever too late. Indeed, Jesus is the judge, meaning his standard is the standard by which we will be judged. You don't get to be judged on the basis of what you understand or expect to be morally right. So we're, the, we're this place. I'm seeing this now in politics. I see this in social conversation. It's like if you just say a lie with enough sincerity, if you just insist that this lie is true enough, then everyone just sort of gets on board. It's like you're creating truth from fiction. It doesn't matter how adamantly you tell a lie. It is still a lie. And what is deemed to be socially acceptable, what gets likes on your social media feed, will not be the standard by which you are judged on the day of judgment. We are judged by Jesus, meaning we are judged by Jesus' standard. We're conditioned by our society to expect that there are going to be technicalities and shortcuts to be taken in the courtroom of God's justice. But this could not be further from the truth. I would remind you that this is one like the Son of Man with eyes as fiery flame who sees all and who knows all, who is not only omniscient, but all-powerful in the exercise of his sovereign judgment. Jesus is the judge of all the earth. Now, on the one hand, there's reason for some fear and trepidation if you don't know him. But on the other hand, if you have by faith and repentance been called a son or daughter of God, there's no need to fear the disciplinary hand of one who has loved us to the lengths he has. 
Jesus is the judge of all the earth. John makes it clear in the second sentence of verse 11 that there is no place to hide. Earth and heaven fled from his presence, and there was no place found for them. The judgment of Jesus is absolutely inescapable. Go to verse 12. John says, I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were open. So we're talking in these verses about two categories of books. One seems to be several volumes, maybe a library of books, and there's just one book over here. I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Great and small is a way of saying no one escapes this judgment. It doesn't matter what class, what ethnic backgrounds you have. It doesn't matter what your social or economic standing is. It doesn't matter if you're large, yes, or the least of these. You will stand before the judgment of God. These books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. The dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the book. This seems in my estimation to be John's way of distinguishing between the saved and the lost. The saved are found written in the book of life. The dead are those whose works are told in the books of works, books plural. If you are saved, you are saved by grace. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, a book which, by the way, was written in the foundation of the world. It is not, as is so often sung in popular Christian hymns, that new names are being written down in glory. This book was written in the very foundation of the world. That could not be clearer in the book of Revelation. And to say that those who are dead or judged on the basis of their work seems to be a way of distinguishing the lost from the saved. If you're saved, you die once, and there is the gift of everlasting life. If you die lost, you die. And though you eternally exist, you live as dead. This seems to be the distinction that's being made in our passage. So there is this multi-volume work that bears record of our every word, our every thought, our every deed, our every work. Multi-volume work. All of our works are brought before the judgment of Jesus. This is a dreadful notion, right? I think there were probably times in history when Christians struggled to sort of grapple with this idea of God carrying this amount, this magnitude of, of information and being able to bear that forth in judgment. It just seems impossible. Perhaps to us it is. In fact, it is. We have this point of reference now on the World Wide Web where all of your information is housed. And everything that you've ever done is recorded and out there in the ethos, somewhere existing. I can't tell you the number of times that I've watched a news story or seen something on a social media feed and thought, I am so thankful to God that social media and camera phones did not exist when I was a teenage boy. You would probably not let me be your pastor. I'm glad that so many of those things have been forgotten now. But they are revived. They are revived on the day of judgment. All of the works are brought into the open before this act of great judgment on the last day. You know, from time to time, you fill out sort of establishing an account. Maybe it's in banking or business in some way. And you, you put in this information. You get these questions like, which of these six addresses have you never lived? 
and five of them you lived there and one you didn't. Am I the only person that sort of freaks out that someone out there somewhere knows everywhere I have ever lived in my life? And I'm just saying to you, if, if that degree of information can exist in a computer database, we're talking here about an all-knowing, omniscient God who knows your every thought, your every word, your every deed, your every action. All of us have experienced the situation in which we wish there were some way we could turn back the hands of time and undo something that we've done. Forget about for a moment those acts of defiance, open disobedience. What about those things we just sort of haphazardly amble into in life? I remember the first time I ever had that sensation, that feeling of weight and guilt and wishing I could turn it back. I must have been six or seven years old. My daddy worked a night shift for 30 years. If you, if you are here this morning and your father worked a night shift, you know that there is one cardinal rule. You do not wake up your daddy when he's been working on the night shift. So I thought I was going to be the golden child, and I strolled into the kitchen to prepare my breakfast for myself on this particular day. And I took one of those 1980s Tupperware bowls and put it on the electric eye of our stove, and I turned it on prepared to crack the eggs about the time that bowl began to run through the eyes of that stove. That old black smoke and smell, plastic stench began to come up, and I jerked it off and wet it down to sort of put it out and ran to my bunk bed and prayed. <laughs> I didn't know the Lord, but I was hoping he was out there somewhere. God help me. And I, I wished, I, I thought, I thought, in my little dumb boy mind, I knew better than that. If there were just a way that I could turn back the hands of time for just 60 seconds, I'd do it all differently. I would have never made that decision had I realized the kind of consequences that would come with that foolish choice in an instant. And in far more adult ways, you and I have had the same experience again and again and again. I've got a long list of them, some of which I'm not entirely sure the statute of limitations is passed for. So I'll spare you the details. But you've had those experiences too. You've wished, you have longed that this moment in your life be forgotten. That there was a way that you could turn back the hands of time. Some of, some of you in this room are living with secrets that your children don't know. Some of you are living with secrets your parents don't know. And you're just hoping and praying that you're able to fly under the radar and that your great sin goes unnoticed for as long as possible. But Jesus could not be clear. What is whispered in the dark will one day be shouted from the rooftop. And dear brothers, on that day when those books are brought and every word, every deed, every thought, every action of your life is brought out into the open and spread forth before the judgment of our God. The only safe place for us to hide is behind the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the promise of our passage, the hope and strength and stay of our soul this morning. We're not approaching this day with fear and trepidation. We're not approaching this day wondering about our standing. How will we be? Will we make it in? This isn't the old joke scenario where St. Peter stands at the gate and we're asked to give a list of reasons as to why we might be granted access. That could not be further from the teaching of the gospel. John said, I have written these things in order that you might know that you have eternal life. There's been a moment in time in your life when you repented of your sin 
and believed on Jesus. And that is for you as the believer, the basis of your hope, not works that you have done, not works that you have done, but the finished work of Jesus at the cross. That's our hope. That's our hope. That's it. You can't do enough. You can't curry favor with God. You can't attend enough church services. You can't be baptized enough times. You can't listen to enough sermons. You can't pray enough prayers. You can't memorize enough verses. You can't deny yourself often enough to merit, to curry, to win, to earn the favor of God. Only the blood of Jesus can keep us on that day. I hear Christians say, people say rather, I'm trying to be a Christian. I'm hoping to get into heaven. Dear brothers, you are further from the truth of the gospel than what you may realize. If I'm out and sharing the gospel and I approach two people, one says I'm lost and headed for hell and the other says I'm trying to be a Christian, this lost brother will make his way to heaven far faster than one who's trying to be a Christian. You have fundamentally misunderstood the nature of the call of the gospel on our life. We don't try to be Christians. We surrender to the Lordship of Jesus and we receive by grace what Jesus has done for us, what we could have never done for ourselves. We said this last week, but this is true of both men and women. We self-impose all of these expectations and in doing so, we cut ourselves off from the lavish grace of God for us, which is our only hope on the day of judgment. This is the truth of the gospel. Verse 13 tells us that the sea gave up its dead. Death and Hades gave up their dead and all were judged according to their works. There's some cultural phenomena behind the way John frames this statement in verse 13. Culturally, it was believed that you are worse off if you died at sea than if you died on land and received a proper burial. Burial in the ancient context was itself an act of piety that would ensure certain things for you after your death. But if you died in a shipwreck, you were just out there floating around in the domain of the dead that was the sea. There is no domain of death that is safe from the judgment of God. The sea gave up its dead, and death gave up its dead, and Hades gave up its dead, and all were judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire, and anyone not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Do you, do you, do you feel the certainty with which these verses speak. As we go back to our last sermon in Revelation, we can talk all day about millennium and what that looks like and all those sorts of things. And there are other passages in Revelation you may have struggled through and we might sort of banty about some different views as to what this looks like. But there is no questioning what John is describing here. All of mankind barreling toward this moment at the end of history as we know it, whereby judgment and verdict is issued by none other than Jesus Christ. For those written in the book of life, judgment granted, we are found to be holy and blameless and righteous on the basis of Christ's work finished for us. But for the dead, as they are described in our passage, there is a judgment on the basis of your deeds. Verdict and sentence is passed on the basis of the things you have done or have not done. Sometimes you'll hear of a criminal 
who's, who's done heinous things, and, and he'll be given the sentence of death, or he might die abruptly. And even in Christian circles, there might be the observation, death was too good for him. He got off lightly. He should have been faced with spending the rest of his life in a prison and undergoing all of the torments and the difficulties associated with that. If that is your perspective, you know nothing of the judgment that awaits the sinner apart from Christ after death here on earth. Here they are cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. This is not their total annihilation. They live eternally, only they live eternally in a state of death and of torment. I think, I think it might be helpful for us to think about the function of hell in this way. The function of the final judgment is not unlike that of the cross. At the cross, the sins of all who would repent and believe in Jesus were paid for forever. In hell, the sins of all who spurn the gracious invitation of the gospel will be paid for forever. And so we're at this place, this, this point of the road where there, there's, there's two ways that we may go. Jesus said there's a, a narrow gate, narrow way that leads to life. And a broad gate and a broad way that leads to destruction. There are many who choose to go the way of the narrow gate. For the very reasons we've addressed this morning. A narrow gate means there's no room for your junk. There's no room for your baggage. You're going to have to leave some stuff behind you. The narrow way is hard. In other words, it doesn't have the functional benefits that the broad way that leads to destruction has. And the consequence of the difficulty of that straight way is that there are few who go thereby. But Jesus said on the broad way, things are somewhat more comfortable. It's a little easier. It's a broad gate so you can bring all your stuff, all your junk, all your trash, all your baggage. Just drag it along. And there's a multitude of people that go that way. Jesus said there are many who go thereby. You see, that flies in the face of the way we evaluate the, the benefits, the usefulness, the rightness of the gospel. We come to faith in Jesus. Yes, because it benefits us, but more importantly, because it benefits us on the greatest day, the moment of greatest significance in the history of our experience. We come to faith in Jesus through the gospel, having evaluated the truth claims of that message and affirm that they are right. You must reckon with this passage, with the notion of Jesus having died in our place and being raised on the third day. You don't get to pick and to pluck of Jesus' teachings, those which are most beneficial for you. Jesus is not interested in being one among your many priorities, but with being the absolute Lord and Savior of your life. He comes on his terms, or he doesn't come at all. Perhaps more importantly, we come on his terms, or we do not come at all. The message of the gospel is true. We affirm the message of the gospel as true. I will say from a personal perspective, I affirm the message of the gospel as true because the Bible says it. And Jesus affirmed the teaching of the Bible. And Jesus was dead for three days. And he was raised again. And so far as I know, no one else has been dead for three days and raised again. When they are, I'll be interested in hearing what they have to say about religion in general. But until now... He's the only one. He has my heart. 
He has my allegiance. And I am quite confident that he is able to save and to keep against that day. The only safe place on the day described in our passage is behind the blood of Jesus. And the message of the gospel invites us to take our shelter there by repentance and faith. In other words, we turn away from our sin. We look at Jesus. We behold him. We regard him as bearing greater value than anything that this world can afford. We don't repent begrudgingly. We repent with joy and delight in our heart because what we are gaining in Christ by so far surpasses anything we might have in this world. We repent of our sin and we believe on him, the promises of the gospel that he is able to save to the uttermost, even a sinner like me. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for these moments to give consideration to such a straightforward passage. God, I pray that you would help us to hide away the principles of these verses in our heart that we might not sin against you. I can't imagine God, even as a believer, standing in that place on that day and not wishing for an opportunity to have done things somewhat differently, not looking back across the span of the life that you have so graciously given me, wishing I had done things differently to bring honor and glory to your name. God, I, I pray that you would help us to live in light of eternity, to live in light of a judgment that is to come, to walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. God, I, I, I pray that it wouldn't just be in those moments when our consequences catch up to us, Lord, but every moment of our life that we would be sensitive to the urgency of the hour, that we would spill ourselves as a living sacrifice in service to you. God, I pray that you'd forget us, forgive us rather in our short-sightedness, how often we focus on the things of, of this world and take our eyes away from the things of heaven. God, forgive us of that and enable in us, Lord, empower in us by your Holy Spirit, higher heights of obedience, a, a, a deeper depth of, of faithfulness to you. God, I, I pray that you'd be magnified in our life. Help us to know, to understand what that looks like and what that means. Lord, help us to discern and to discern rightly the truth of the message of the gospel. To stake our claim there and our soul might be anchored in heaven. God, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.